Christine, and good morning again, friends. Good to see you this morning. Feels like it's stopped raining outside, which is good. My car will still be there. Have you ever watched a caterpillar become a butterfly and that whole process? Uh, as a boy, you do, as a child, when you're young, you tend to notice these things. Us adults get a little bit distracted and probably we're higher and we're thinking about other loftier things, whereas children often study nature and, and the natural world a, a lot more closely. Well, I can remember when I was young and I collected some caterpillars in a shoebox and then I covered that box over with a, its lid and I punched in tiny holes around the box, hopefully not stabbing the caterpillar, um, with pins to try and give it some enable space for air and then I put leaves in the box and filled the bottom of the box with um, debris from the garden to try and make it realistic and I probably put a ramekin of water in there as well so that it had its own lake to draw on because I was wanted to watch the process of how this bug was going to become a butterfly. Well after a while the, this the caterpillar or caterpillars whatever it was that was in there stopped their incessant crawling and chewing and they attached their tails firmly to a stick that was in there and they lay still. And they sheathed this tiny wood-like case from all the stuff that had been in the environment. And then for weeks I thought my experiment had stopped and died because nothing happened. This cocoon just hung there off a branch. And I thought, well, that's the end of my experiment. So I took the lid off and I thought, oh, well, nothing's going to work. But fortunately, I didn't just tip it out in the bin or something. I just left it there and followed the situation, thinking that my experiment had killed the bugs, but following on what was going on. And then one day, that cocoon started to twist and shake, just gently, but something was going on. And then it, it split open. And a beautiful butterfly escaped from its cocoon. It stood there for hours. I can remember just outside of it, just gently fanning its wings. It wasn't flying. It was just starting to get blood and fluid into its wings. And then it just let go and took off and soared and elevated and went away with the wind gracefully on the breeze of that warm day. And it left nothing behind except for that broken cocoon to indicate its former bondage. The empty cocoon and the butterfly are great symbols for what we're celebrating at this time of our Christian year. Friday week ago, we gathered that morning with the knowledge that our Lord Jesus Christ was dead. He had been executed in the most humiliating and horrible of ways. He was the Lamb of God and he had fulfilled what a sacrificial lamb needed to do to pay the price for sin and evil and separation from God of the world. His small band of followers departed the scene and the women, knowing that he was dead, started to prepare, started to prepare spices for the body. John summarised how he had fulfilled his mission in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And it was achieved through Jesus' death. But then last week on Sunday, we gathered again 
And this time the mood was completely different in our service. It was happy and it was noisy and it was messy as we celebrated that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave and had conquered death. We captured that in Play-Doh, in drawings and singing and praying and colouring in. Um, And you can have a look at the colouring over there on the table. Paul wrote these famous words that summarised the situation. They could only have been written... These words could only have been written if indeed the resurrection had happened. Paul said, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Achieved because death was conquered. Achieved because Jesus is risen. Achieved because Jesus is alive. And then in this morning's passage, continuing on on Resurrection Sunday, Luke tells us about this encounter later the same day with Cleopas and one other disciple on the road to Emmaus. A village, Luke tells us, it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. They didn't realise it, but the man they were talking to, telling the events of the Friday to, was none other than Jesus himself. I was at a friend's wedding reception once. Um, It was in a park in Fitzroy, and it was a beautiful, warm spring day, I think it was. It was certainly a warm day, I can remember that, uh, because I decided I needed a drink. I was getting a bit parched. So I went over to the trestle table, and by the trestle table were ice buckets of rubbish bins, filled with drinks that were, that were kept cold. I was fishing around in the bucket for a drink that I was looking at, whatever the drinks, and seeing when I could pick one, and I was joined by another bloke who was trying to do the same thing. And so the two of us were kind of bent over this bucket, fussing around, trying to work out what it was we wanted and what was in there. Anyway, the two of us eventually found whatever it was that we wanted, and so we straightened up and opened our drinks, and we clinked cheers, that we'd finally made it and we'd just become like micro-friends in that little scene. We began some small talk and we shared around various topics. He was a lovely guy. Um, And then we got to that intimate moment between two men where you exchange names. I'm Andrew, I'm Guy, he said. We kept going. It turns out Guy was a lovely bloke. He was about my age. We had a lovely chat for several minutes. And you kind of, as you do, we worked out how we knew each other through our relationship to the bride and the groom. Um, I probably talked too much, but it kept the conversation going. And then after an appropriate moment, we said, farewell, it's nice to meet you, and went back to our different friendship groups. Now, Guy was a lovely guy. And I just had this kind of feeling the whole time when I met him that I'd met him somewhere before. He was like, you know, we'd met in some previous um, experience in, in life. Anyway, we said farewell and off we went. But as the afternoon went by, there was something in my brain that just kept going, I know that guy. I know him. Where do I know him from? We'd met before and he just seemed really familiar. Anyway, the reception picnic went on and occasionally I looked across to see where Guy was to think if that would prompt my brain, where do I know this guy from? I couldn't place him, no matter how hard I tried. So eventually I do what all males do. I went to the cloud. I went to my wife who retains all knowledge of these sorts of things. 
It bugged me so much, I asked her, who is that bloke there? Who is Guy? And she gave me back a look that only a wife can give as she calmly and disarmingly told me that no, I hadn't met him before because he was the famous actor Guy Pearce, fresh off the set of Neighbours or Home and Away or The King's Speech or The Mayor of Easttown or Jack Irish or whatever it was he was filming at the time. I had no idea who I'd been having a chat with. I'd just been talking with Guy, lovely Guy. Anyway, at least I managed to treat that famous actor like he was no one special and he probably enjoyed it for those several minutes. Sometimes we don't recognise the most obvious of people because our minds are in a different place. I guess there are many other angles from which we can speculate about how Jesus wasn't recognised in this scene. But there are three things that strike me about this scene and the message of resurrection that I want us to take with us this morning. And the first thing is, these depressed travellers met the risen Lord on the road and despite not recognising who he was, they insisted on offering him hospitality. So the hospitality that's offered in this scene is not because he's Jesus. It's because they've met a stranger on the road and it's getting dark and they did the right thing. They were actually living out the discipleship. He taught them and modelled them. Verse 28, as they were approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. Could be a test. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Friends, it's often when we go out of our way and offer hospitality that God is able to break in and do interesting things. Often, usually, hospitality is inconvenient and may require stretching a meal over an extra amount or allowing your precious plans and time to be disrupted. But it's in that decision to put someone or God above yourself and your priorities that the door opens and God is able to come first and therefore work. It was through hospitality to a stranger that these people met their risen Lord and conversely, Back in Genesis 19, in that horrible story, it was through a lack of hospitality and the other behaviour that was going on that the town of Sodom was condemned. Hospitality opens the way for God to work. I can remember years ago when I was working in a different church, a distressed and confused lady turned up at the door of the church. It was a Saturday. I was trying to write a message and get stuff done for the Sunday And I thought it was inappropriate that I brought her inside to the building for a long time, a strange lady, and um, I was just in a big empty church. And besides, and probably more honestly, I had plenty of things that needed to be done in preparation for the next day. So I justified myself for a moment that I had a good excuse to justify that it was inappropriate to devote too much time to this lady. But for whatever reason... Care for her and her pressing needs and the need to offer hospitality got my attention. So over the next six hours, I was able to give her proper and professional help and arrange for that. I was able to give her food and drink 
and even pulled strings to arrange for accommodation for her and medical support all through the networks of our church because it turned out she didn't have anything. And then I was able to get her in contact with her family. She would had a, a breakdown and she needed help in that moment. In that moment, through offering hospitality, I had the opportunity to be the hands and the feet of Jesus or not to be the hands and the feet of Jesus and to justify it. It was, not, it was not my agenda for the day, but it was God's agenda for the day. And that's how Matthew 6 verse 10 lives out. God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And yes, interestingly, yes, I got the message done for the day. Normally it might take me 10 hours to write it, but I probably wrote a better message in, two, in the two hours that I had. As the reality of another person took priority. And God met me in that. But here's the interesting thing. We got through the whole weekend. The lady was cared for. I did all I needed to do for my work. But here's the interesting thing. No, I cannot remember what I preached on on that Sunday. But I can remember the lady. Interesting. If you want to meet God, then open yourself to the practice of hospitality. There's a multitude of ways if you're open to do it, in big and little ways. And this is what happens in this scene. This whole scene unfolds and hinges on the point that the disciples open their hearts and open their doors. The second thing that stands out in this passage that I just want to draw attention to, there are so many things and I'm only touching on three, but the second thing is what happens here with the breaking of bread. I want to draw our attention here to what happened at the table with this stranger that they thought they'd brought in for the night. Remember, even though it's in red letters, and Jesus is speaking in red letters, they still hadn't had the aha moment and worked out who it was. This is still a stranger. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. It just sounds like the words of invocation at communion. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Immediately, this meal scene turns into a replay of the supper that they'd shared with Jesus just the previous Thursday night, three nights ago. What we did on Friday morning, nine days ago, that same meal, it was this action that opened their eyes to the stranger on the road. And it was because of this experience that they then rushed back to Jerusalem to tell the others that their Lord had risen. Friends, when we break bread together, we're remembering the Lord's sacrifice and death. But we're doing it after his resurrection. And therefore, it's a meal filled with hope and anticipation, expectation. It's a meal when our eyes are open to the Lord and his incredible, amazing, wonderful reality and presence. And who else is at the table? Jesus is alive and we should want to tell others of this experience quite naturally. I think the church across its 2,000 years has often missed the main point of the Lord's table as we've sacramentalized it and ritualized it. Let me unpack this a little for a minute or two. Now, how do you think one of your non-church friends would react if you invited them to church because it was the Sunday when we were having communion? They'd come to church this Sunday. It's a special Sunday. We have communion. I've heard of lots of reasons to invite people to church. But I've not heard of communion as a common one, if at all, as a tool for evangelism. 
In fact, we tend to make it the opposite in the church, don't we? We're sometimes clear that it's a Christian meal and non-believers who might be present should let the elements pass by. We cite 1 Corinthians 11 verses 27 to 29. So then, whoever eats the meal or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So on a surface reading, it sounds like it's a meal only for believers and others will get in trouble if they partake of these elements and they ought to examine themselves. But I want to put it to you that if you're already outside of God's kingdom, not a believer, and you don't confess Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, how much more guilty can you really get? How much worse can it get? You're already in need of the saving grace of Jesus. It actually can't get any worse. There's no rank of sins. You're either made righteous by faith in Christ or you're not. It seems to me that they may as well join in the meal anyway if there is a chance in that experience of getting closer to Jesus. And as I say that, hang with me, as I say that, before we remember, and this is important, we need to remember that 1 Corinthians, it's written to the church. It's not written to people who are outside of the church. It's written to the church, not non-believers. It's written to Christians. And it's telling us how we should prepare for communion, not those who are outside of it. It's written to Christians telling us how we should prepare for communion by examining ourselves. Paul says everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. That's for us. So let me go back to my original question. How do you think one of your non-church friends would react if you invited them to church because we're having communion? Maybe they'd come. Maybe there might be a unique reason. Maybe you should try. But more than likely is you haven't and I haven't because we don't think of communion in that way, in that fashion. But what if we remember the setting of communion was like in this text? Verses 29 to 30 say, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. The difference with the way we practice communion for practical reasons, with little cups of symbols of juice and little slices of bread, compared to this scene, is their meal was sitting around a table. Now, we have a table, but we reduce it into a symbolic action. They were literally hungry and had been on the road as they sat and ate. And Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks. And all of a sudden they remembered their guest's words. Sounded something like they'd experienced only three nights earlier on the Thursday night. That same night Judas was revealed as the betrayer. And then they saw him. They saw the risen Jesus. Now while there's a literal description here of Jesus appearing to his followers and then disappearing... 
I think there's also a clue about evangelism, which is a fancy word for meaning good news. I think there's a clue here about good news, sharing the good news of Jesus' resurrection, about sharing that Jesus is indeed the risen Christ. It's about inviting people, excuse me, it's about inviting people to our table and showing hospitality and breaking bread. And in the midst of that experience, trusting the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to the unseen guest at that meal until he becomes the seen guest. There's power when we add hospitality to breaking bread. And the third thing I want to reflect on as we open this passage is this is not a story about escapology. This is not a scene of escape from the world. If, if we were to believe many sermons we hear over a lifetime that we hear about what was accomplished of Jesus rising from the grave, it would be something like, so we could go to heaven, or so that we could know that the atonement really worked, or so it was proof of his divinity. But what's striking about each of these motivations, as true as they might be, what's striking about each of these motivations is you can't find a New Testament verse to back them up as the reason for Easter Sunday, the day of resurrection. And neither is it clear how these ideas couldn't instead be achieved by some extraordinary other sign or vision. When the resurrection is believed but not understood, its fundamental connection to Christian hope tends to disappear and becomes about escape from this world rather than the redemption of it that Jesus came to achieve. As I've already read, John famously said in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in it, his, that believes in his, him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. And often our practical theology is some kind of like attached to condemning the world by saying we can escape from it. That's not why Jesus came. Sometimes the message of evangelism, the message of Christian good news, is just about getting into heaven. Salvation becomes interpreted as being saved from this world. This beautiful world that God created. Although our names are definitely and certainly written in the Lamb's book of life through faith in Jesus, becoming a follower of Jesus is about much more than just getting a boarding pass and sitting at the gate and waiting for your number to come up and then leaving. That's not what Jesus formed his disciples to do and that's not what we're called to do. As though the purpose of living as a Christian is just to wait for the next life. Friends, as real as the next life is, there's work to do now. We can enjoy renewed bodies and health and worship for eternity. But these precious years we have in this life are for hurting people, lost people, wounded people, lonely people, confused people, people without hope, people who are all around us people who are waiting to be invited to our tables. Friends, the resurrection is not just about your and my eternal chances to escape to a better world after this bad one has ended, whenever that happens. 
To leave the accomplishment and message of Jesus at that would be like stopping a meal at entree when the best is yet to come. There is plenty more to come. And Jesus has called us to shine the light and do it. The hope of the resurrection is hope for this whole world, that God's ways have and will finally triumph in God's creation, despite all that we are and all that we do and all that our history tells us, that it triumphs in Christ. It's a hope of a new order in this world under the lordship of Christ. And it's a call for us to participate in it. We're the ones who were called to be the sign and the instrument and the foretaste of God's responsive and redemptive activity in the world. The story I told you about that lady who came to the door. Either I expressed the kingdom in that way to that lady in her needs in that moment, or it didn't happen. That's the responsibility that each of us in a million different ways Contexts and varieties at work and at home and at school and on the street and in a sporting club and whenever you're doing whatever you do and coming and going, they're the opportunities when God brings a need to break into our ordered life that we might respond. In short, we're the ones who know and announce that Jesus has risen from the grave and that Jesus is alive and we're the ones that shine the light and live it out. The life, the ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate at this time of the year at Easter that started, that was the old era that was, that was so cruelly ended with our actions of crucifying Jesus as humanity nailed him to the cross was broken on Resurrection Sunday when he rose from the grave and death could not hold him down and Paul was able to write those words that we are more than conquerors because we are part of God's redemptive activity in the world. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and no longer counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who has no sin to be sin for us so that, we, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So think of the empty cocoon and the butterfly as you think of Easter. Easter is the miracle of the butterfly escaping from the cocoon as the new creation, shaking off the old pumping life-giving fluid and blood into its wings, ready to take off and becoming the new. That's you. That's me. That's the message of Easter in Christ. Remember on Good Friday, around the communion table of all places, when we talked about the Israelites' instructions upon leaving Pharaoh's Egypt, 
They needed to leave quickly. They needed to leave in haste and leave the old. They needed to make for the new. And it was going to take them time. As it panned out, it was going to take 40 years. But they were to become a new people. Friends, the resurrection calls us to do the same. To follow the risen Christ with faith and hope and love into the world as a new forgiven people, empowered by God. So let's go into the world this week, singing, turning up the music, praying, reading your Bible, going as resurrection people, ready to be interrupted to what God wants in the world. Because he's one. And we go as more than conquerors. Amen. Let's worship. Let's, let's sing and praise God and go as butterflies into the world. Amen.